episode 36 of If These Walls, in which we talk about the circus, is best paired with a cotton candy margarita. Three-quarter cup tequila, half a cup fresh squeezed lime juice, half a cup cream soda, quarter cup orange liqueur, and one package of cotton candy. Combine the liquids and shake vigorously. Pour over a glass three-quarters full of cotton candy. Sip while listening to Circus by Britney Spears. And also... Hashtag free Britney. No, seriously, this is a Britney Spears stan podcast, and we are horrified at what this woman has been put through. Free Britney. Hey, girl. Hang on a second. Uh, I'm right in the middle of something. Just hang on. Oh, okay. I guess I'll scroll through TikTok while I wait. I'm like the ringleader. I call the shots. Call the shots. I'm like a firecracker. I make it hot when I put on a show. I feel the adrenaline pumping through my veins. Spotlight on me and I don't know the words. I'm like a performer and it's in a stage. Oh, are you done? Oh, shit. I didn't know you were listening. Well, Elena, can I ask you a question? Yes. If there are really only two types of people in the world, the ones that entertain and the ones that observe, which ones are we? Secret option C. We're the ones that sit in the back row and eat popcorn and judge people, but make ourselves loud enough so that we ultimately become the center of attention. Ah. Uh, honestly, that tracks. Mm-hmm. Welcome to If These Walls, a storytelling podcast. A storytelling podcast about the parts of history and culture that make us more human and define our world and our own lives, which fly through the air with the greatest of ease. JK, life is terrifying and unpredictable, kind of like the trapeze, probably. Each week, we will both share real stories, telltales, famous, infamous, or unknown that fall under our interpretations about a sp- specific theme. And if you try to talk too fast, God's going to make you laugh at yourself. He will get you. He will grab you by that sentence's heels and say, slow down there. I was honestly caught up in your amazing Britney Spears impression. Thank you. Anyway, this week for the theme Elena has chosen... The Psychus. Yeah. Well, why this now? Because, Joy. That's, that's enough. <laughs> that's some taste. That's just enough. Um, I, I have, like many people, I'm sure, such a romanticized view of the circus. And I told you this before we started recording that um, I do talk about history and I do talk about the circus, but this ultimately gets uh, a little more like personal and it, it weaves a personal story, personal stories of mine into this, this circus narrative, which oh I think God. is kind of fun. If you um, end up telling a storyline that is anything similar to Christina Aguilera's Hurt music video, I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, since I was a kid, the imagery of an old-fashioned circus has been like burned into my brain. I, I just love it. It's pure magic in a way that I can't even quite put into words. So obviously, theater and live performance are very important to me, and I have dedicated my whole life to them. But the potential for magic in a circus makes me very, very emotional. (laughs) And honestly, 
I'm not even sure I've ever actually been to a circus. Wait, what? Not that I can remember, at least. I, I haven't. I just haven't. I don't how, know. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, this goes into a thing of like, how are we technically defining circus? Because I want to give a shout out to some of those Kmart parking lot carnivals. That's not a circus, though. But what if there are ducks? Uh, like performance okay, I, ducks. I mean, I've been to the Campfield Fair every year of my life. Okay, but I don't. I, I mean, did it? I don't know. Okay. Well, like the, I'm talking like big top, there's animals, trapeze, clowns. I haven't been to that circus. So the part of me that wants to be like, oh, you should go is also like, that's okay. (laughs) We don't need to support this. Biggest circus ever is no longer around and we'll get there. But so let me be more specific. My love of circus imagery and stories and magic is based almost entirely on its portrayal in fiction and in art. The potential for magical greatness is so much greater when we are not based in reality, which I rarely am. So some examples. The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern is a favorite book. Morgenstern's portrayal of a fairy tale-like circus based in an ahistorical timeline is beautifully written. And her descriptions of the eponymous circus allow the imagination to soar without the encumbrances of things like venue logistics, ticket sales, large piles of poop, and animal cruelty. You know, some of the many problems that plague a real circus. Elena. Yes. What a beautiful sentence in which you said eponymous encumbrances and poop. (laughs) That's a beautiful sentence. I really think my writing is getting better. It took off, babe. All right, let's go. (laughs) The Night Circus has features such as a, like the circus in the actual book, has features such as a blooming garden made all of ice, acrobats soaring without a net, and a vertical cloud maze where patrons who get lost simply step off and float gently to the floor. The circus has no set schedule, appearing without warning and leaving without notice. It is perfect. Because it is not real. Aww. That sounds lovely. It's a beautiful book. Audrey, do you know the term frizen? Yeah, it's really cold jail. <laughs> That's clever. It's like Mr. I pictured Mr. Freeze. Yeah. I'm taking uh, this definition of frizen from a great podcast called Be There in Five, which is hosted by Kate Kennedy. And it is from her that I first learned the term frizen which so perfectly defines a feeling that I've had my entire life, but never knew quite what to call. Frizen, also known as aesthetic chills or musical chills, is a psychophysiological response to rewarding auditory and or visual stimuli that often induces a pleasurable or otherwise positively balanced affective state and transient paresthesia, sometimes along with piloerection and mydriasis. I am going to need a breakdown. <laughs> okay, so for, let's, let's work backwards. For the record, piloerection <laughs> is the bristling of hair follicles. It's literally when your hair gets a boner. It's, it's a pile of erections. And mydriasis is the dilation of eye pupils. No, I know. So basically... It's that feeling you get when you hear or see something so visually and auditorily stimulating that you get goosebumps, tears well in your eyes, and you remember how beautiful and amazing life is. I can think of many examples that get me literally every time. The opening lyrics of The Lion King, the stage version, paired with seeing Julie Taymor's unbelievable animal puppets, those first few moments, 
Um, that moment in my best friend's wedding when they all sing in the restaurant. And that viral video from a few years ago of the groom and his brothers performing a haka at a wedding in New Zealand. I'll, I'll link it. I, I think have, you would know what I'm talking about when you saw it. I have uh, some musical theater moments. I can, there's, first off, I know what you're going to say. There's so many. There's so many. But I remember. Especially in musical theater. Certain phrases, and honestly, Sondheim and Jason Robert Brown in particular have really cornered the market on, I'm going to, for some reason, put these five notes in an order that is going to make you cry. Just hearing those five notes in that order. But, um, what was I going to say? Oh, in, now this isn't Sondheim, it's even Schwartz, but Wicked mm-hmm. came out when I was in normal school. I'm a girl. It was, it touched me. Um, so if you care to find me, look to the Western sky. Oh, yeah. Oh, I just got it. Uh, yep. <laughs> got and it, it. It, doesn't, it doesn't hurt that at that moment she is literally being lifted off the stage. Lifted for the first time. So that's there's there's like a visual and an auditory component to a lot of these. But some, you're right, some are just a, a smattering of musical notes that give you goosebumps. I can get you right now. Okay. You're finished. Ah, nope. Stop. <laughs> I will cry. Hamilton. This um, is a Hamilton podcast. Okay. <laughs> so these aren't just the moments we love. These are the moments that, oh, you're going to love this sentence. Are you ready for this? I'll start. You're already crying. I oh, shut up. So these aren't just the moments we love. These are the moments that touch us deep in our very soul, that crack our hearts wide open and allow for the beauty of those moments to fill in those cracks, to make us into a more empathetic human being with an even larger heart. I think frizzin inducing musicals theater movies tv shows videos are literally make you into a better human being it's like an abstract uh kintsukuroi the the art of when you break pottery and you bring it back yes. together with gold yeah that's what i was going for uh-huh. with my heart metaphor um so a few months ago derek and i went down a youtube rabbit hole uh searching for these moments in pop culture that give us those feels i don't know it's almost like we were trying to find joy in the middle of a never-ending pandemic it's weird um <laughs> Which brings me to my point for today. The movie, The Greatest Showman, about the life of P.T. Barnum, has no fewer than three of these frizzin-inducing moments for me. No matter what you think of the plot of the movie, it has some really powerful moments. And no, it's not a theatrical masterpiece, but it has beautiful and powerful imagery that apparently makes me cry every time that I see it. So I don't know if you know this about me, but I don't typically watch movies well, I have the attention span of a newborn baby ant. Oh, Bobby. Yeah. And after we watched it for the first time, which was a couple years ago, Derek said to me, do you know how I know that you liked that besides the fact that you're still crying? (laughs) It's because you didn't pick up your phone or even move once. I think sometimes you forgot to breathe. He's so observant. And also that is concerning. You need to breathe. (laughs) He is observant. But this is a response that I usually have to get from live performance. But I felt it from this movie. I got the the arm hair boners and the eye pupil dilation. You wrote the big words and you said no. I didn't feel like saying the words again. And I realized that I'm a huge dork. So in this movie's case, it's not just the mu- music or the costumes or the setting. It is an indescribable quality that is a result of everything in motion. To me, that's why Hamilton has so many of these frizzin-inducing moments too, is lit all of the elements are so perfectly align that it creates the most wonderful spectacle. 
and the backdrop of a circus, that mythical, mysterious performance venue that I've loved since I was a kid, at least in its imagery, is portrayed in all its glory. Ahistorical and impossible things happen on screen, but it's not, nor could it be impossible, because in the circus, anything is possible. So, let's talk about the circus. Let's, let's do it. That's why we're here. Thank you for joining us. This is what you came for. On May 21st, 2017, the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus broke down its tents for the last time. Metaphorically, they hadn't performed in tents since around 1957. After 146 years in business, low attendance, increasing protests over animal rights, and extremely high operating costs forced the iconic circus to say bye-bye. PETA, who had been fighting Feld Entertainment, the producer of the circus in its modern times, for years regarding animal rights issues, said that the circus's closing was, quote, the end of what has been the saddest show on earth for wild animals and asks all other animal circuses to follow suit as this is a sign of changing times, which is obviously a play on the circus's longtime slogan, the greatest show on earth. Incidentally, PETA also forced retailer Trader Joe's to remove all circus imagery from their packaging, including toilet paper, peanut butter, and peanuts in 2019, citing that our society no longer to- this is a quote, our society no longer tolerates beating elephants into submission for circus shows. Which like, yeah, of course, in practice, but on a toilet paper label, I'm okay with it. Why do you hate pretty art and the feelings of vintage childhood nostalgia so much, PETA? Who hurt you? I'll tell you who hurt PETA. It's Katniss Everdeen, so he threw a loaf of bread at her in the rain. <laughs> that was how he got back. That's Fuck you, Peter. Yeah, I real I uh, that. P- uh, who do you hate worse, Peta or Peta? <laughs> I don't hate Peta. I just said they're very problematic. I like carbs in all form. I like Peta with hummus. I like Peta with <laughs> peanut butter in between. <laughs> I'm just gonna do this the whole rest of the episode. The Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus brought together two circus factions, Barnum and Bailey's Greatest Show on Earth and the Ringling Brothers World's Greatest Shows, which merged in 1919. Despite the many names that surrounded this merger and all of the personalities involved, the most infamous is undoubtedly Phineas T. Barnum. Much like our friend Marie Antoinette, from episode one, there is no proof that P.T. Barnum actually said the phrase that he is most well known for, there is a sucker born every minute. But I'm sure he would have said it if he heard about the horrors that MLMs have perpetrated in the 21st century. <laughs> so it's one of those it's one of those quotes where it's like this this generally sums up the behaviors of this person. So we're gonna say they said this. Yep. Okay. And you'll see where it comes in. It's not it's not a far stretch, but he didn't say that actual phrase. Barnum, born in Connecticut in 1810, owned many various businesses before settling into the business of show. So guys, let's not sugarcoat this at all. Barnum was not Daddy Hugh Jackman dancing and singing his way on stage with a band of extremely talented societal outcasts to take care of his gorgeous wife and children. He was heavily problematic. I mean, so were the times in general, but that doesn't make this next sentence any easier to read. When he was 25 years old, Barnum purchased a blind and almost completely paralyzed slave named Joyce Heth, whom he advertised as one of George Washington's former nurses, which would make her 161 years old. At the time of her purchase, 
Slavery was already illegal in New York, but Barnum was able to lease her through some legal loophole. He exhibited her for 10 to 12 hours a day over the next year until she died. After her passing, he exhibited her body in a saloon in New York City where spectators paid 50 cents to see her body, which was still cut up from her autopsy. Incidentally, doctors believe she was no older than 80 upon her death, not 161 years old. What the fuck? Okay, so we do need a palate cleanser from that real quick. So I need a no, 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 no. We will. I need a minute to sit in it. Okay. I need a minute to sit in the what the actual fuck? It's really bad. It's really bad. And it's to do uh, that, to be allowed to do that, to have an audience for it. I've heard a lot of stories about Barnum's humbug and the, and I'm going to use this term and I don't want to use this term, but this is the term and I'll put it in quotes, quote unquote freaks that Barnum worked with and, and, and exhibited. And I had never heard this before. I, much like your reaction, I read it when I was writing this the other day and I, I just sat there for like two minutes and looked at the screen. I didn't know what to say. It's horrifying. I'm ready for a palate cleanser. Okay, real quick. Top three favorite fruit-based candies. Oh, those dumb strawberry hard things that are full of strawberry goo that only grandmas <gasps> have? Yes, those are great. Yes. Uh, the original sour balls, like the hard ones that just like, the, like the green one was my favorite one. My mom used to have them in a candy dish. Ooh, warheads. Warheads uh, and surprising adults with them. Um, Laffy Taffy. And Starburst. Hugga number one Skittles. I think we covered them all. Okay. Shout out to Jolly Ranchers. I do appreciate you, and I will pick you over a warhead, but warheads mean something to my childhood. And blow pops, but I think those belong in a different category. Oh, yeah. They, they, they're they they're suckers, and there's one of those born every minute, so we don't need to talk about them right <laughs> Bring it all around. Bring it all back to you. Barnum debuted his first real troupe of performers in the late 1830s, entitled Barnum's Grand Scientific and Musical Theater. He bought a building on the corner of Ann Street and Broadway, which is right by the current city hall and the site of the 9-11 Memorial, if you are familiar with New York. The building had previously been called Scudder's American Museum. Barnum upgraded the interior, put fancy giant posters on the outside, much like you see in the movie, The Greatest Showman, and filled the building with giant stuffed animals, like taxidermy animals. And eventually he added human talent, albino people, giants, little people, jugglers, magicians, exotic women, and live animals. When we talk exotic women, are we talking about Selma Hayek dancing with a snake? in from dusk till dawn or... i sure hope so because that is hot <laughs> <laughs> i have a little bit of a selma hayek thing everybody has a little bit of a selma hayek thing <laughs> selma hayek holding a frosty is the most appealing Im- not frosty a mcflurry is the most appealing image in the entire american pop culture oeuvre what's that for is that from 30 rock yeah yeah okay what is a mcflurry besides the world's greatest dessert (laughs) Barnum's first and most well-known hoax was introduced in I guess it's not his first hoax but his most well-known hoax was introduced in 1842 the Fiji mermaid which I first learned about in an episode of the x-files the torso of a monkey sewn to the tail of a fish the attraction was supposedly found by an American sea captain off the coast of Fiji in 1822 
Barnum would later justify his hoaxes by saying that they were advertisements to draw people in the door. Quote, I don't believe in duping the public, he said, but I believe in first attracting them and then pleasing them. So you do the crazy thing to get the people in the door, and when they're there, then you can show them the real stuff. I'm going to trick you, but if you like it, then I'm not a bad guy. Exactly. I sure. hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after the Fiji mermaid was introduced, Charles Stratton began working for Barnum. In The Greatest Showman, Stratton, known better as Major Tom Thumb, mm. quote, the smallest person that ever walked alone, is portrayed as being in his early 20s when Hugh Jackman finds him. In real life, Charles Stratton began working for Barnum at age four, though he was passed off as being 11 years old. Tom Thumb, who is beautifully portrayed by actor Sam Humphrey in the movie, was coached to imitate Hercules and Napoleon, smoking cigars and drinking booze as early as five years old to the delight of the crowd. Five. Five years old. After a visit... Excuse me. After a visit to England to meet Queen Victoria in 1845, Barnum's success grew rapidly, and the museum began attracting over 400,000 people a year. So the giant stuffed elephant in the room is this. Barnum did bad things. Racism, ableism, misogyny, you name it, it is in the story. Now, the movie does a lovely job of mostly glossing over most of it by romanticizing Barnum's character. It doesn't completely ignore the problematic nature of Barnum's actions, but it does, however, excuse him for it because he's ultimately a quote-unquote good guy. But that's creative license, I suppose. That's casting. You cast Hugh Jackman. It's true. The filmmakers did a good job of keeping true to some of the major details of Barnum's life under a heavy layer of paint to cover up those little nasty bits. So I'm going to do a little comparison now. I know you haven't seen the movie. I have not. Okay. For reasons I cannot tell you. Okay. So Barnum's Museum did really burn down in 1865, as portrayed in the film. Ah! The, spoilers. Sorry. The source of the fire was never determined, but it is likely that it was arson set not because of someone's outrage at Barnum's sideshow figures, but because he was a union sympathist and had many Confederate enemies. He opened a second location, but that too burned down in 1868, forcing Barnum into a tent down by the river, as portrayed in the movie. Thus, the big top was born. The bearded lady. <sighs> I mean, I feel like it's something that I could really aspire to if I stopped plucking. If I stopped, sh I shave in the shower every yeah. day. Yeah. Every day. The bearded lady, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with having chin hairs. I thought there was my whole life. I choose to shave because I will otherwise get my sweaters caught on my chin. <laughs> and that's just about comfort for me. But it's not something I have to do. And no. it's not something you have to do. No. The bearded lady is heartbreakingly and powerfully portrayed by Kiala Settle in the film. The filmmakers renamed her Letty Lutz, but her real name was Annie Jones. And she was only one when Barnum began displaying her in 1866. How in the... One. Annie Jones, despite that, Annie Jones spent 35 years with Barnum and was well known for her musical talents, much like she is in the film, and her quote-unquote gracious etiquette. This Is Me is the anthem that this movie is best known for, an unapologetic heart stomper of a song that Letty Lutz breaks into when she and the performers realize that Barnum is embarrassed to be associated with them while on tour at a fancy party with lots of rich white folks. 
It is the anthem that anyone who's ever been labeled as a misfit or been encouraged to feel shame about themselves needs to scream sing in the shower once a day, at least. Mm-hmm. Jenny Lind, also known as the Swedish Nightingale, was one of the world's most famous opera singers in the 19th century. So much like was portrayed in the movie, Barnum did help to fund her tour when she was on the verge of retirement, paying her $1,000 per performance in a 150-date tour of the United States, an offer that no one could refuse. Could you imagine making $1,000 per performance? In what year? 1850. In 1850. Uh Uh-huh. With ticket sales and merchandising, Jenny Lind netted Barnum a cool half million in 1850 alone. Lind donated her entire earnings to charity in her home country of Sweden. So in the movie, Audrey. I'm listening. I'm just looking up 1850, $1,000. <laughs> in the movie, um, she leaves the tour because of her unrequited love for Barnum, who won't give in to her advances because he is such a good guy. How much money is it? $33,000. I can't deal. $33,394.10. And two bits. Said by Judd Fry from the background. I'm sorry. I have Oklahoma on the brain. So that, you know what? That musical, no frizzing inducing moments for me, period. Ooh, girl, you should have seen the Daniel Fish interpretation. And by interpretation, I mean, it is the exact same script, but all we have to do is cast it just the right way and cast light in the right direction. And you go, holy shit, this is terrifying. I'm sure. I've just not seen the right production. Shout out to Ali Stroker. Um, so here's my point, which you haven't seen the movie. So in the movie, Barnum is having this woman, this opera singer tour the United States, and she makes a move on him because she's in love with him. And he says no. He rejects her advances because he's such a good guy. Um, In real life, the real Jenny Lynn ended her tour with Barnum because she grew tired of his relentless marketing of her. (laughs) So in this case, the filmmakers really did Jenny Lynn dirty, but I guess it was for the drama and the conflict. She just wanted to sing. Is that a crime? 33,000 a day, ma'am. I'm going to plaster your face, your ass, and your name all over every billboard I can find. I need to recoup those losses. But one thing... The one thing to know here, she didn't, like I said, she donated her entire profits to charity. She did not really want to do this tour. She had just never been exposed in the American market. And Barnum said he could do that for her. And when she came to America to do this, it turns out it was much larger than she had anticipated. And he is, I mean, he's a, he's a relentless marketing guy. So you get kind of an Amy Winehouse situation where before her tragic passing and of many demons in her life, Amy Winehouse would famously say, it's like, I just want to play in the clubs again. Like, I would rather be in a jazz club. I do not want to play this arena. Yeah. Um, So what we would recognize as the American circus really did begin when Barnum moved his show to the big top, relying on the tent as opposed to a permanent structure, which happened around 1870 when Barnum was 60 years old. He teamed up with James Bailey in 1881, expanding his circus empire, and eventually merged with Ringling Brothers in the year 1887. Barnum died in 1891 at his home in Connecticut. He remains, and always will, a controversial figure. The Greatest Showman will have you believe that even though he has his faults, tolerance and acceptance of differently abled people was not one of them. But that's just not the case now, is it? He profited off of people with differing abilities, lifestyles, and backgrounds his entire life. 
Regarding Barnum, Benjamin Reese, a professor of English at Emory University, said in an interview with Smithsonian Magazine, quote, the story of his life that we choose to tell is in part the story that we choose to tell about American culture. We can choose to erase things or dance around touchy subjects and present a kind of feel-good story, or we can use it as an opportunity to look at very complex and troubling histories that our culture has been grappling with for centuries. Essentially, the reason we wanted to like start this podcast. <laughs> is that, isn't that our elevator pitch? Who said that? Yeah. Fuck you, Smithsonian Magazine! Well, it was this Benjamin Reese, this Emory professor. So I fuck you, Emory it. University. That's theft of intellectual property is what that is. Did you say it before me? Probably, but it's <laughs> what I was thinking. Yeah. All we want to do, this, we were taught English, we were taught American history completely wrong, and we need to reteach people, and that's what we would like to do. With my just top shelf impressions. Exactly. We can both love the circus and hate it. Its history is rife with human rights and animal rights violations, and yet it, much like many avenues of performance, remains a beacon to those who have felt like outcasts in their own lives. It is opulent and impossible and enchanted. And though it skirts over the big and important issues, The Greatest Showman is a frizzin-inducing homage to what the circus could be. I cannot even read the lyrics to This Is Me Without Crying, and if the song The Greatest Show comes on during a workout, I am amped. And it is lovely to have these reminders of our own power and joy. And so I say to you, good people of Trader Joe's, bring back the circus toilet paper because we need more reminders of magic in our everyday life. So, <laughs> so a side note, um, I really did like that circus stuff. Did you ever buy their circus peanuts? They've got circus. Okay. So circus peanuts is the worst candy is the worst. Candy. Oh, John Parentoni loves them. Did you know there was a circus peanuts shortage during COVID because of supply demand, supply problems? You well, couldn't find them. Because they needed to use the same materials to make ventilators? <laughs> Probably. You couldn't find them anywhere. We just sent him a package of two bags that we found at a gas circus, station. <laughs> circus peanuts and bucatini, man, which I told you bucatini's back. Bucatini's back. You know what's not back yet? Fresca in a can. We've been saying it from day one. It's not back. Hit the buzzer under your desk. And have the nice White House assistant bring it to you. Uh-huh. It's my, di- my, red, my red Diet Coke button. So a side note, I'm going to link a video in our resources, or you can simply look it up on YouTube. If you want some frizzin' and you love The Greatest Showman, or even if you're just a human who cries when people sing beautifully, there is a video of the cast singing the song from now on from their pitch to Fox to get the movie made. So essentially, they assembled the whole cast, producers and the Fox executives, the people with the money, they assembled everyone into a giant studio to prove that the movie should be made. So this was just a pitch to get money. Before they introduced this YouTube clip, um, Daddy Jackman tells us that he just had a cancerous growth removed from his nose and his doctor specifically told him not to sing. So he was to go to this read-through, this sing-through of the show, but he couldn't really truly sing it. Someone was going to sing for him, and he would act out the, the dialogue parts. So you watch this video, and he sits passively for the first part of the song, which he just, you know, you can tell he just he's full of emotion, and he's full of joy. But then he just can't sit no more, and he gets up and he starts singing. And this video is 
absolutely incredible and it must be watched now. It's probably in my top 10 prison moments. Um, go, like pause the podcast and, and go listen and we will wait. Goodbye. Do, do you want to watch it now? I'll show it to you real quick. Or do you want to not watch it? You can watch it later. Thank you. I've seen the, I've seen the, um, the next clip you're going to talk about. Okay. While you're at it, watch the clip from the same day of Kiala Settle singing This Is Me. And she talks about how she was extremely nervous to sing this. And until halfway through the song, she is so terrified she can't even come out from behind her music stand. So she starts off very nervous. And then she just like harnesses all her power. She gets her castmates riled up. She makes Daddy Jackman cry. And she basically murders us all with her talent. And I just, I watch it. And sorry, told you I was going to cry. And I am. I miss the camaraderie of performance and being able to bear your soul in front of people that you trust and opening your mouth and making the loudest noise you can. And now I've reduced myself to tears. <laughs> you wrote that knowing yourself. Let's take a quick commercial break. <laughs> that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> and I'm tapped. You did good, and you did, and you wrote it up to the end. And future lady came in and said, "You need to end it here, kid." <laughs> and you tapped it out right when you needed it. <laughs> I'm I'm laughing in solidarity. Um, yeah, honestly, I, I get it. I do. This might get a little more personal, and maybe I'll edit it out. But I I watch these things, like I watch those videos of people singing, and I I mean, besides the absolute beauty of it and the fact that it makes my heart sore. I, I can't figure out exactly what it is behind it that makes me like it, it, it brings out all my emotions. So I feel joy, but I also feel sad. And I think that sadness is maybe because I didn't push myself enough as a performer and I have kind of given up on singing, which I used to consider myself very good at. And I just don't touch it anymore. I think it's because I never thought I would be good enough kind of thing. I don't know what is – there are some – like, I need to go to therapy and just talk about why I cry when people sing songs because <laughs> I think there's a lot to unpack there. I think if I were to take a stab because I have – not, I've not told anybody this, but when I was I, – I recognize having this thought when I was, like, in middle school and going up. When I first started to be like, okay, I want to sing, and it was it was around the the, the Wicked and the whatnot, and I really – loved and identified with belters fucking loved whitney houston celine dion i just something in my head could hear the sound i wanted to make and could predict how it would feel coming out of my body like this sense of relief the sense of throwing everything in your chest and feeling it resonate in a very specific whole way in my throat i don't know how to describe it probably proper technique is the way to describe it do i have that Nah. <laughs> Have I been afforded the opportunity to learn that? Sure. Am I a bit of an asshole sometimes and I don't really study things? Maybe. So that's, that's where I'm at right now. But in hearing, particularly with some of those um, pieces of musical theater, it's usually, well, a combination of notes, words, and Bernadette Peters. Hello. You are so well-timed, Derek. What are you drinking? Is that a butter toffee? Butter it's a, butter rum? It's a margarita. We have them every Friday. It's Margarita Fridays. Can he hear you cry and bring you alcohol? <laughs> he senses it. 
That's amazing. (laughs) Where were we? Belters. It's fine. (laughs) I was, no, I was a belter when I first started singing. That's all I sang. And that's, that was, I felt powerful. It gave me so much confidence. And then I went to college and the first person that I took voice lessons from in the music department was a, a, she was a trained opera singer and she beat the belt out of me. She didn't beat me with a belt. She beat with the belt, belt out of oh, me. Okay, there you go. Um, and I then I lost with it. The belt. <laughs> and I haven't gotten it back. I need to go she sing in my car more. That she used to be mine. Um, I I wouldn't say I was a belter. I would say that I was a a golden Labrador with rabies, and that I was old yeller. And I. <laughs> <laughs> And I would just shout, shout, shout till I couldn't no more. And now I lose my voice easily. <sighs> Thank you for that trip into the into the nostalgic heartstring pulling side of the circus. If you haven't seen Greatest Showman, which Audrey hasn't, I, you should go watch it. It's just, it's just, it's just, yes. Circuses can be nostalgic and ethereal and have an ephemeral magic, but a circus is just a group of many different performers, often including clowns, trampese artists, and animal trainers. And you can also use circus to mean noisy, confused activity. As in, Britney Jean Spears' title track to her album Circus described the noisy, confused activity she encountered on a daily basis while recording an album under duress. That was me using it in a sentence. Thank you. It was well done. I really thought she was singing about a circus. Circus. Those are the words that I know to that song. The circus does have quite a bit of thrill-seeking opportunities for audiences to come and feel like they're getting so close to danger while still being somehow held in a safe, performative, giant tent. Arena. Circuses are places of thrill and danger, and they have also had their share of accidents and tragedies throughout history. Here are some of them. Here's a list of sad things. (laughs) Get ready for your arm hair boners to go Uh... way south. In 1872, the St. Louis trapeze accident happened when Fred Lazell and Billy Milson fell to the ground when the trapeze construction failed. They fell on George North, a gymnast who was underneath, and all three men were injured to the point where they didn't perform anymore. Also in 1872, but on the other side of the world, Masarti the Lion Tamer. On January 3rd, while he was performing in Bolton, England, a lion named Tyrant attacked him, after which three other lions also attacked. Masarti was torn apart in front of the audience of several hundred. I assume he did not survive that. No. No. I looked into this a little bit more, um, and there was a belief that it was somehow part of the show. So there was a very long delay in anyone trying to intervene at all. Holy shit. I feel like I hear that all the time when accidents happen in performance. (sighs) Rosa Matilda Richter was the first human cannonball ever. Amazing. Good for you, Rosa. Mm Mm-hmm. Except for now. Oh. She worked in the circus since she was 14, 
under P.T. Barnum and was mm. shot out of a spring-loaded cannon into a net. Until when she was 14, she missed the net and broke her back. 14. <sighs> the fly... The flying. <laughs> the flying Walendas are a stunt performer family that in 1962 had an accident on the tightrope. They performed their famous seven-person chair pyramid act when a leading man faltered. Three men of the family fell, of which two died and one was left paralyzed. <sighs> and the Cleveland Circus Fire didn't have human victims, but over 100 circus animals died in a fire of the menagerie tent of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus in 1942. It's unknown how the fire started, but it spread too quickly to save many of the animals. Mm. These are just a few dates sprinkled across the history of the modern circus that are marked by tragedy. But one day, Thursday, July 6, 1944, stands out from the rest, known as the day the clowns cried. Oh, God. I am very sorry for taking you on this journey. <laughs> we should have maybe ended with mine. <laughs> We want to, do you want to, do you want to talk about your favorite fruit inspired chocolate? We'll do, we'll do that after. Okay. In the mid 20th century America, a typical service traveled to from town to town by train performing under a huge tent called the big top. And as Lainey explained, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus was the largest circus in the country. It's big top could seat 9,000 spectators. Made of canvas that had been coated with 1,800 pounds of paraffin wax, dissolved in 6,000 gallons of gasoline. It was a common waterproofing method at the time. Sure, sure. When the circus arrived in Hartford, Connecticut on July 5th, the trains were so late that one of the shows scheduled for that day had been canceled. Here's the thing. In circus superstition, missing a show is considered extremely bad luck. The next show went on just fine, but performers were still on guard. It was the next day, Thursday, and the crowd at the 2.15 afternoon performance was dominated by women and children. The size of the audience that day has never been established with absolute certainty, but the best estimate is around 7,000. This is like the Chicago Theater Fire I talked about episodes back, where it, was, it, it just so happened to be a performance that was all women and children because it was a weekday. Mm-hmm. <sighs> The fire began as a small flame on the southwest side wall of the tent just after the lions had performed and during the Great Walenda's routine. The conductor, Merle Evans, directed the band to play Stars and Stripes Forever, a tune that traditionally signaled distress to all circus personnel, but really made all Americans go, ooh, yay, my country. Ringmaster Fred Bradna urged everyone to leave in an orderly fashion, but the power failed and he could not be heard over the speaker system. Some of the audience ran to the exits as Bradna and the ushers unsuccessfully tried to maintain order. At least two of the exits were blocked by the chutes used to bring in the show's big cats who had just performed. People trying to escape couldn't bypass them. Some ran in circles to find children who had been separated from them in the panic. Some stayed in their seats, trusting that the staff would have the fire under control before long. And then the paraffin began to melt. Oh. I'm sorry. That's okay. Like, I knew it was coming. I know. Okay. 
Trapped audiences were burned by molten wax raining down from the roof for eight minutes before the structure finally collapsed with hundreds of spectators beneath it. It is commonly believed that the number of fatalities is actually higher than the estimates given due to the poorly kept residency records in rural towns, the fact that some smaller remains were never identified or claimed, which is a terrifying sentence to say, and additionally, free tickets had been handed out to passersby that day. According to some surviving staff, uh, several of these passerbys had a look of, quote, drifters who would never have been reported missing. Yet the number that is most frequently reported is 169 deaths and over 700 injured. Some died from injuries sustained after leaping from the bleachers in hopes that they could escape under the sides of the tent, though that method of escape killed more than it saved. Others died after being trampled by other spectators, with some asphyxiating underneath the piles of people who fell over each other. Oh, my God. Most of the dead were found in piles, some three bodies deep at the most congested exits. A small number of people were found alive at the bottom of the piles, protected by the bodies on top of them when the burning big big top ultimately fell down. Holy shit. Not a fun day. Hang on, I need several sips of this. Margarita. You can do this. If, if, if you want to take a quick breather and think to yourself, how, I mean, you're under a giant canvas tent that's doused in gasoline anyway. But also in 1944, what was going on? Were there things happening? No, like nothing else was happening in the world that year. Okay, so um, there was, for some reason, a shortage of staff. Huh. Um, you said is summer of 1944 right Mm -hmm. so this is speeches of normandy summer this is one month after d-day yeah yeah um so there was a shortage of funding there was a shortage of interest uh cash flow was low and then also there were there was a shortage of people that needed extra additional work so the circus part of why it was also late that day it was understaffed yeah oh that's yeah yeah i was gonna tell a story but it's boring so I bet it's not. (laughs) The best known victim of the circus fire was a young blonde girl wearing a white dress who wasn't really known at all. Little Miss 1565. She was named after the number assigned to her body at the city morgue. Oh my God. Her face is perfectly preserved and stayed that way post-mortem, appearing almost serene despite the circumstances. She was buried without a name in Hartford's Northwood Cemetery, where a victim's memorial stood. Two police investigators, Sergeants Thomas Barber and Edward Lowe, photographed and took her fingerprints, footprints, and dental charts. Despite massive publicity and repeated displays of the famous photograph in nationwide magazines, she was never claimed. In 19... What? This is still unsolved? I'm getting there. Okay. But yeah. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> but, but yeah. yeah. In 1981, Lowe's widow announced that the sergeant had identified the child and contacted her family, but that, that, that they'd requested no publicity. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Sorry. In 1987, someone left a note on the 1565's gravestone reading, Sarah Graham is her name, 7638, date of birth, six years, twin. What? Ooh, I got, I got the, I got the arm boners. <laughs> that gave you arm hair boners. Yeah. 
The twin is what got me. It's the twin. It's twin, period. Yeah, that's scary. Because then who put the note there? Twin. What if it's not, what if it's signed twin? (laughs) Like that's her name. (laughs) (laughs) What if they're my twins? Sarah and twin Graham. (laughs) What if they meant to write Twinkie? Sarah, no, no. That's not good improv. I should say yes, and I had nothing after the no. I don't know why I know. Thanks for no butting me, Balco. (laughs) In addition to the Sarah Grimm note, several additional anonymous notes on nearby gravestones indicated that her twin brother and other relatives were buried close by. But there's no reports of the validity of this claim or even any extensive investigation into it. Bella's in the witch elm. Fuck her, I guess. People just not responding to notes. Maybe it stands for twink. It doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) It's also me doing bad improv. Flat no, it doesn't. And that's me making a reference to Search Party, which everyone should watch on HBO Max. Oh, I do need to get into that. Anyway, in 1991, arson investigator Rick Davey published A Matter of Degree, The Hartford Circus Fire and Mystery of Little Miss 1565. In the book, Davy claims the girl was Eleanor Emily Cook from Massachusetts. Davy also contends that there was a conspiracy within the judicial system to convict the Ringling defendants who were charged after the fire. Yeah. Obviously, there was a lawsuit after the fire. Yeah, I was going to ask. Before writing the book, Davy spent six years researching the case and conducting his own experiments as to how the fire really may have started. He described the original investigation as, quote, flawed and primitive, stating that Eleanor Cook's brother Donald had contacted authorities in 1955, insisting that Little Miss 1565 was his sister, but that nothing came of it. Donald believed that his family members were shown the wrong body in the confusion at the morgue. But there's still room for doubt. Perhaps most significantly, when shown a photograph of Little Miss 1565, Eleanor's mother, Mildred Corinthia Parsons Cook, amazing name, amazing, immediately stated that it was not her daughter. Hmm. She firmly maintained that stance until her death in 1997 at age 91. Wow. Badly injured in the fire, Mrs. Cook had been unable to claim her two dead children and was too emotionally traumatized to further pursue it later. Oh, my God. Nothing is good about this story. I know. I don't know why I keep waiting for... Okay. Cook had been told that Eleanor was not in any of the locations where bodies were kept for identification. She believed that Eleanor was one of two children who had been burned beyond recognition and remained unidentified. Mm -hmm. The most likely scenario is that a family claiming a body early on mistakenly identified Eleanor Cook as their own child and that she is buried under that child's name. And even when Little Miss 1565's picture ran in the newspapers, her family failed to recognize her as their own because they had already buried a body and wished to put the traumatic event behind them. Yeah. Nevertheless, with the true identity of Little Miss 1565 still unresolved for many, The body was exhumed after the release of A Matter of Degree and buried in Southampton, Massachusetts, next to the body of Edward Cook, the brother of Eleanor and a victim of the fire himself. In 1992, 
her death certificate was officially changed from the previous identification of 1565. Since then, the Cook family has raised questions about whether the body is indeed that of Eleanor. While DNA analysis could end this debate definitively, the logistics of exhuming all of the likely candidates for this potential mix-up make an undertaking unlikely. Hmm. Sergeants Barber and Lowe spent the rest of their lives trying to identify Little Miss 1565. They decorated her grave with flowers each Christmas, Memorial Day, and July 4th. After their deaths, a local flower company continued to decorate the grave until her remains were exhumed. March 4th is our next episode, (laughs) John. You didn't have to read that part. We were eventually getting to that. I felt like somebody needed so, uh, someone I, out there needed to, something. Like, yeah. <laughs> Do you like the flavored um, Tootsie Rolls that aren't Tootsie Roll flavored? No, they're stupid. Are you kidding me? I fucking love those things. The grape one tastes like grape the way Dimetap tastes like grape. Okay. And then it doesn't. It tastes like purple Hold broccoli. Hold on. Absolutely nothing that is artificially grape flavored tastes like grapes. I'm trying to think of, you know what does? You know what does? Sparkling white grape flavored water. You have it in your fridge. Uh, okay. I'll give you that one. Grapes. I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one. But candy that is grape flavor does not taste like grapes. I love the lime ones. The orange ones are number two. And you're a crazy person. You're very wrong. Why would you do that if you had Starburst as an option or Laffy Taffy? I'm just saying other people have done it better. Other I get people that. I get that. But when I go to my vet's office and that's all they have in the candy dish, I'm going to eat them because I'm nervous. Honey, honey, those are for the cats. (laughs) No. (laughs) Quick, quick kind of wrap up here. I think the common thread uh, in our (laughs) both stories Uh is that so much pain has come out of P.T. (laughs) Barnum. And his life, and is it worth the Cracker Jack? I don't know. I love Cracker Jack, so maybe. But think about safety when you go out to the circus, guys. I'm sorry. I haven't had a Cracker Jack in 54 years. (laughs) Who is that? Who is she? I don't know. She's a new character. Is she free for tea later? (laughs) Maybe. Um, One thought that came up while we were talking. So... um, no, I have not, like I said, been to the Big Top Circus, um, nor have I, this is kind of a weird like way to get into this story that I want to tell you, but um, I do work at the Palace Theater. Ooh, <laughs> she works at the Palace. Which was built in 1928, and it was a vaudeville theater in like vaudeville's very last heydays. Oh my God, isn't that your birthday? What? 1928? Yeah. You're funny. Um, But no, but there's one of my favorite features to show people that are performing at the palace is the animal ramp because there were live animals, tigers, lions, bears, oh my, that were used still in vaudeville shows at that point because it wasn't, you know, PETA didn't exist yet to fuck everything up. Uh, No, I'm sorry. I'm very anti the bad treatment of animals, I promise. Um, But yeah, there is a ramp from underneath the stage that goes up onto the stage that they call the animal ramp. It was concrete, so it could be easily hosed down. But uh, I am going to do a little bit of like, look at me, quickly. Um, 
couple years ago when my favorite murder was at the palace, I had to go pick up Georgia and Karen from their hotel in my 2007 disgusting, messy Honda Civic. That you they picked them up in the Civic? Barely fit in. They barely you- fit in it. Okay, so here's what happened. I went to the theater early in the day and the stage manager, I was like, everything okay? And he goes, yeah, except I don't think uh, that the talent has a ride from their hotel. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we could like, uh, how, how do we do that? So I had to figure out a way to get them to the theater. The fastest way was for me to throw all the trash in the back of my car into the trunk and go pick them up. It was terrible. I felt was awful. Was there room anyway, in the trunk? You have other trash in the trunk. I know. Um, anyway, I picked them up at the hotel. They're in my car. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> these these are the hosts of My Favorite Murder, the, the podcast that made true crime podcasts okay for all of us to listen to. I want you I, to look at me real quick. Yeah. You are smart and strong and uh-huh. beautiful uh-huh. and funny, uh-huh. and your car is the worst thing about you. <laughs> I know. I'm more, <laughs> I'm more, I know. I get it. Um, anyway, the point is I picked them up in my car, and we made the, like, one-mile drive to the theater. And there was a lot of traffic in downtown Columbus, and they asked – and they were like, well, what the hell's going on tonight? I was like, oh, it's a Blue Jackets game. And they were like, oh, what's that? So it's the hockey team. They were like, where did you get that name from? I said, it's actually a reference to the Union Army. And they were like, oh, that's really cool. And then Georgia was like, so what about this theater we're going to? Is it haunted? And I've always been told – we've talked about this on the podcast before. I've always been told you don't tell people if the theater is haunted. So I was like, uh, I don't really know of any hauntings, but one cool thing about it is – there's a animal ramp from the old vaudeville days when you could still bring live exotic animals into the theater. And they thought that was so cool. And they made a reference to it during the show about how the venue staff told them. And then they, they turned it into a joke about like dogs dancing in tutus. And I thought it was really cool. And then if you listen to the live episode from Columbus, Ohio, which is on the, my favorite murder podcast feed, you can hear that. That was me. That's my claim to fame. So anyone needs to feel any more confident in our ability to research and provide you with information. We've been cited in my favorite <laughs> in my favorite murder. And by we I mean Laney. And by Laney I mean something Laney heard. <laughs> it's not something I've heard, it's something I know. <laughs> anyway, March 4th is our next episode drop. Now we've got um a lot of stuff we have to do in the week so this episode we're recording now we're recording early but it drops on february 18th and um we have a whole we've both got some crazy stuff we have to do in the week between that so we're going to take a week off after this episode we'll be back on march 4th the next episode are a theme a will a be bloodlust oh I got the arm hair boners. <laughs> See, it was one of the, we had the topic circus and I was like, I'm talking entirely about Jess, but you know what? It's what you want to hear about. It's what you want. It's what the people want. Bloodlust. Oh my God. Okay. I'm so excited. I'm very excited about it. All right. Bloodlust coming to you February. No, I'm sorry. March 4th to all podcast platforms. 
Where can they find us in the meantime, lady? If these walls pod at gmail.com for suggestions, comments, corrections, concerns, and praise. And also, speaking of praise, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. iTunes has a really, really bizarre algorithm, in case you didn't know. And you only get seen by more people if people click the five stars on your podcast. So if you could do that, it really helps us get seen by more people, which allows us to produce, you know, more shows. Anyway, um, you can also check us out on Instagram at If These Walls Pod. Uh, there we will post photos from this week's episode. And that's all I got. That's all I got. That's all I got. I'm just, I'm going to miss you every second you're gone, but I also recognize that we are still going to be in contact. So. We've literally haven't seen each other for months. Yep. Okay. Love you. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Bye. But also bye. <laughs>